This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online, the fastest, easiest, and safest way to bet on all things sports. With March Madness, the Masters, and Major League Opening Day right around the corner, Bet Online has all the latest news, scores, and odds to help you win big. The best part? You'll receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. That's literal free money. Head over to betonline.ag and use our promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, to receive that literal free money. Plus, signing up is a great way to support the Hardwood Knox podcast which you're listening to in your ears right this very second. And even if you're hate listening to us, go to betonline.ag, promo code BLUEWIRE. Again, that's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, when you sign up at betonline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Hardwood Knox podcast uh, brought to you by betonline.ag. It's Andy Bailey here uh, to take you through another um, abbreviated mailbag, I guess I'll say. Uh, Once again, lots of participation, so thank you to everyone for the questions that we got. I'm sure if I don't hit your questions, Dan could get to them uh, when he records in a few days, so... Hopefully, uh, hopefully we get to you uh, at some point. <laughs> As always, uh, we encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, Apple, uh, whatever your podcast player is, we should be there. Um, As always, you can follow Dan on Twitter, Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. I'm at Andrew D. Bailey. Uh, Hardwood Knox is the handle for Hardwood Knox, and Blue Wire Pods is the handle for the podcast network. All right. All that stuff's out of the way. Dan's obviously better practiced at the uh, intro than I am. But here we go with the questions. I am going to start with a question from 21 Savage at number underscore one. With the Pelicans taking the eight seed from the Grizzlies largely to due to Zion's immediate impact warrant him winning rookie of the year over Ja. Could that be him making a bigger impact in less time, or is the principle of him not playing enough games too big of an issue? So I, I think my answer on this has evolved in the last couple of weeks. I thought the maximum number of games he can play is going to be under forty, and I just figured that was too that was too much to overcome. Jaw's been great all season long. Um, Right now, he's averaging 17.5 points, 6.8 assists. He's got a true shooting percentage that's slightly above average. Um, he, he's got his team in the playoff hunt. Right now, they're in eighth. Uh, they've got a really tough schedule coming up, so it'll be kind of surprising if they hold on at this point. Um, positive net rating swing, which I think is important, especially if you're a rookie, especially if you're a point guard. Um If he wins Rookie of the Year, I don't think it's going to be some grave injustice. He's had a phenomenal season. 
But <laughs> having said all that, uh, I- I'm starting to wonder if people are going to see what Zion's doing, and especially if they end up taking eighth place. They've got a really easy schedule, um, quite the opposite of the Grizzlies. If they finish eighth, they get that playoff spot, and Zion continues to play the way that he has. I, I think he's going to get some votes. Um, this could end up being pretty close, even if he only plays, you know, 37 games. I think that's the max he can get to right now. He's playing 28 and a half minutes a game, averaging 23.3 points, 7.1 rebounds, 2.3 assists, um, you know, quietly having a pretty good passing season. His, His numbers are just absurd. As we could probably, probably should have expected, his efficiency is off the charts. He's got a true shooting percentage above 60. Um... If you stretch those numbers out to account for the the limited minutes that he's playing, so let's let's do per seventy five possessions, twenty eight point four points. Um, let's see, twenty eight point four points, eight point six rebounds. Sorry, I'm doing this on the fly, and uh, two point nine assists. Just ridiculous numbers, and his net rating swing has just been absurd this season. Um, the Pelicans they're plus 11.4 points per 100 possessions when he's on the floor, and they're minus 3.1 when he's off, which is just a a massive swing. Um, The sample size is still real small with him. He's just played 370 total minutes. Um, There are times when I watch him where I'm I'm holding my breath with the way that he moves. I just, there's this little part of me still that's worried that he's going to get hurt. Obviously, I I really hope that that doesn't happen. because he's just a marvel to watch. I I can't remember the last time um, I was as locked in to an individual player as I am with Zion. When his games are on, I just I can't look away because he's always on the verge of doing something remarkable. Um, just obviously the vertical athleticism is probably what he's best known for, and that's phenomenal to watch. Uh, one thing I've noticed lately is he often seems to be moving at about like 50 to 75% speed. When he breaks into that full sprint, it is terrifying. Um, I think he's a lot faster, like his top end speed than people realize. And then another one, he gets a lot of credit for this too, but I think it might still be slightly underrated. It's just his touch around the rim is, is unreal. The way that he can absorb contact, hang, um, do those little finger rolls that he does after he gets hit. I, he, he's just got so much skill already. He's got a great feel for the game. He knows when to cut. He knows where to cut. Uh, he's generally in the right place on offense. He, he'll he need some time to figure that out on defense, where to position himself, when to be in certain spots. Uh, but I, I think that'll come. Um, you know, now I've gotten on off on a pretty long Zion tangent. I, I think the betting odds probably still favor John Morant, and it would be pretty shocking if they gave someone the uh, MVP or the Rookie of the Year without playing 40 games. But we've reached a point now where it's it's at least um, on the table. I, I I would I just said I would be pretty shocked, but maybe I would not be shocked to see him get some votes. He's just he's been phenomenal, and and I think most of the people who follow me know that I've been very high on Zion basically from the first moment I saw him play at Duke. Um, but even even I'm probably a little bit surprised by what he's done this season. He's just been outrageous. All right. Thank you, Juan. Um, Radius Athletics asks, uh, what's Dallas's ceiling this season? I like this question. Um, it took Dallas a little bit of time to figure out the fit with Kristaps Porzingis, 
and Luka Doncic, but they are very much clicking uh, here lately. Their overall net rating, when those two are on the floor together for, for the entire season, is plus 6.7 points per 100 possessions, which is really good. Um, they've played almost 900 minutes together, and again, they're about plus 7 per 100 possessions in those 900 minutes. However, let's just limit it to since January 1st. Plug that in real quick. Jumps to plus 10.4. Um, 119.8 offensive rating, 109.4 defensive rating when those two are both on the floor since January 1st. Um, I didn't do this before I recorded, so I'm gonna this is this is on the fly. Now it's since February 1st, and the net rating is 22.1. Um, very small sample now that that we're dealing with in that sample since February 1st, because Luca missed some time. Um so it's just over 100 minutes, but they are starting to figure out each other's chemistry. I think what I was really intrigued about with them coming into the season was the possibility of Porzingis playing sort of a mobile, um, almost playmaking five type of a role. And I think it took him a while to get there. And obviously they played him with a traditional big, I think a lot more at the beginning of the season than they're doing now. And he just had a quote today. Um, I can't remember who had it, so my apologies. But he said he 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 now likes playing the five because he feels like he contrib- can contribute a little bit more. And I think now that he's there and you can run more of those Luca KP pick and pops, pick and rolls, um, they're just going to be really really difficult to stop. It, offensively, obviously they're they, they've been the best offense in the league all season long. They're still on pace to have the highest points per hundred possessions in NBA history. Um, so offensive ceiling is is just the sky's the limit there. Uh, what's going to hold them back, obviously, is the other end in the playoffs. I, I think um, teams are going to be able to score with them a lot of nights just because their their defense isn't quite there yet. But I think they're they're going to be a little bit more of a challenge than people realize in the playoffs. I'm giving a very non-answer answer here because it's just it's hard to commit one way or the other to Western Conference teams right now. I mean, uh, there are a bunch of different matchups that could end up happening in the first round where I would say I could easily see either one of these teams uh, winning. Once again, I think the West is just loaded uh, two through six, maybe even two through seven. Um, I, I honestly think you might even be able to say one through six because the Lakers statistically are a juggernaut, juggernaut right now. I still have a little bit of trouble trusting their supporting cast in the playoffs. Um, having said that, they're going to be able to play LeBron and Anthony Davis more in the playoffs, so maybe the supporting cast matters even less at that point. But the West is just its just loaded, so it's hard to predict where exactly Dallas ends up. I don't think they're if – if I were to organize the West by tiers, I think I would have the Lakers and the Clippers probably in the top tier. Yeah, let's let's rate them by ceiling actually to get back to your question lakers and clippers i think have the highest ceiling um nuggets and rockets are probably next and then i think the jazz even though they're they've been a mess lately the jazz the mavericks and the thunder are all in the same tier right now and honestly if i were to rank within that tier i know i'm going long on this but i'd probably have dallas first in that tier it would probably go dallas oklahoma city utah um so again, tier one in the West by ceiling, Lakers, Clippers. Then tier two is Nuggets, Rockets. Tier three would be, um, sorry, Dallas, Oklahoma City, and Utah. 
So I don't think they're they're a title contender quite yet this year. Uh, they're certainly trending in that direction, though. I I love the way that they play. Um, the top two again, they're starting to gel since January first. Again, Porzingis is at twenty two points per game. 37% from three, nine rebounds, um, almost two blocks. And in the same stretch, Luca's at 28 points, um, 10 rebounds, eight and a half assists. Finally, it's it's like they're both reaching their full potential at the same time and been fun to watch. So <laughs> a, kind of a non-committal answer for you, Radius Athletics, but uh, that's where I have them right now. Uh, at Band-Aid Wade asks, where do you rank Zion and Tatum in the league? Top 15, 20, 25, 30? Um, good question. Just talked about Zion. Uh, Tatum has been absolutely out of his mind lately. Another big game against the Jazz here this week where he has 30 points. I think he ended with 33, actually. I think his true shooting percentage was over 70. Um, let's see. Hold on. I want to I find his numbers just in the last, like, month. So give me a second. Let's go to his game log here on Basketball Reference. I am going to take this back to... So he came back from injury on January 28th. So we'll just... His first game back was January 30th. So this is a 12-game sample since January 30th. 29.7 points, 7.3 rebounds, 2.9 assists, 1.2 blocks, 1.2 steals. Um, that's the thing about Tatum this year that I think for, for the first portion of the season, it was his defense that I think had elevated him to another level. He, he was switchable. His length was a problem for smaller guys. He was a good, he was doing a good job on the glass. I think that had raised his ceiling significantly. And now in the last month or so, his offense has taken off too. And when you've got (laughs) both of those things going, uh, you, you're doing pretty well. The other thing about these last 12 games I didn't even mention before I went off on that tangent, 51.3% from the field, 48.5% from three on 8.4 threes a game. Um, this is an absurd stretch from Tatum. And and based on a bunch of catch-all numbers, even before this offensive explosion, uh, one more number for you, by the way, in the last 12 games, 65.3 true shooting percentage. Just unreal what he's been up to lately. Um, but back to my point, even before this explosion offensively, the catch-all numbers loved him, and I think in large part because of his defense and because of how much better Boston was when he was on the floor. Um, now, with the offense catching up, that's just that's been increased exponentially. I think you can make a pretty strong argument that he's top 15 to 20 already, which is, I, I would not have guessed that coming into the season that he would hit this level. Um, he, he's just been unreal again. And and it's the length, the athleticism, the smoothness of his offensive game. Um, he's playing with a confidence now. That's just fantastic. His shot selection is much, much better. He's gotten away from a lot of the mid range stuff that I think plagued him last season. He's much more of a get to the rim, get to the line or take a three guy, which is just done wonders for his efficiency. Um, so yeah, I think he's probably top 15 to 20 and then Zion, um, defensively, he's got a long way to go, but he is an absolute nightmare on offense. What he did against the Lakers the other day, I know he shot like it was below 50%, which is rare for him, but it was still like eight of 18. 
and the drives that he had against guys like Dwight Howard and Anthony Davis were just eye popping. Um, going at them with zero fear, uh, putting that spin move on people that he's already got kind of a go-to move with that spin. Uh, he's got, again, great touch around the rim. Um, offensively, he might already be like a top 20 to 25 weapon. It'll just take his defense a little bit of time to catch up. Um, I don't have a list of players in front of me right now, but I, I think I'd probably put Zion in like the 25 to 30 range, maybe 30 to 35. Um, so he's, he's clearly a little bit behind Tatum right now. I do think his defense will get better. He obviously has the physical tools to get to do it. And his steal rate and his block rate and his defensive rebounding rate were all really, really good at Duke, which is, you know, those are encouraging signs. Um, but he's just, it's just going to take him some time to kind of learn the nuances of NBA defense. All right, let's see here. Jesse Dunn at Dunn's Odd. Listening to Tom Haverstrow on ESPN 700 today, and he said that Joachim Noah played really well with Mike Conley in Memphis, and the Jazz should consider signing him. Did the numbers back that up? Did they play well on the court together? This was interesting to me. Um, I This had not even begun to cross my mind until I saw this question, and I think that's actually a fairly interesting idea for Tom Haberstrow. To answer Jesse's question, yes, they did play really well uh, it, it, relative to what their whole team did when he was on the floor. So last season, the Grizzlies, as you'll remember, were quite bad. Uh, they were 25th in the league in net rating, minus 3.1 points per 100 possessions. Um, bottom third of the league team, just kind of a cellar dweller all year. But when Conley and Joachim Noah were both on the floor, they were plus 2.0 points per 100 possessions, which ranked in the 68th percentile. That's a pretty significant swing um, from minus 3.1 overall to plus 2.0 with those two on. And I remember kind of casually following Joachim Noah last season, because I thought it was interesting that the Grizzlies signed him. Um, and so I just kind of kept a little bit of an eye on his numbers. And I remember thinking he's, he's playing pretty well. Um, you know, I didn't think that he would, and he, he looked pretty good last season. Um, he wound up with the third highest box plus minus of any Grizzly player last year who played at least 500 minutes just behind uh, Conley and Gasol. And <clears throat> here are his numbers per 75 possessions. They are predictably well-rounded. 16 points, 12.8 rebounds, 4.8 assists. Uh, uh, you know, always been a really solid passing big man. 1.7 blocks and 1.1 steals per 75 possessions with an above-average true shooting percentage. Um I'm going to guess that his net rating swing was positive based on that lineup data we already pulled up, but I'm going to double check it real quick. And sure enough, it is. Um, Memphis, over the whole time he was there, was plus 2.1 points per 100 possessions when he was on the floor. Um, and it was, looks like, minus 3.6 when he was off. So, <clears throat> long-winded explanation. Yes, they were good together. Uh, Noah, individually, was quite good. Last season, he was in his age 34 or age 33 season. So if he came back now, he'd be in his age 34 season. Um, and I do think it makes some sense for Utah. I, they're in the middle of obviously a, a kind of an existential crisis here. Um, but one problem that they've had throughout the season is backup five. The Ed Davis minutes were a complete disaster. Um, that signing just 
did not work out. And that was one that I was relatively high on when it happened. Um, but he just didn't fit. I mean, he wasn't really, he's not really a pick and roll big man. He's more of a, just a garbage guy, offensive glass guy. And one of the things that made Utah's bench pretty solid last year was that favors was the backup five and he's a great pick and roll five. So, um, the, the chemistry with Ingles and favors in that second unit was huge. And they just, they haven't had that role man this season. Tony Bradley's had his moments here or there. Um, but he's only slowed the bleeding of the second union. I think um, the the bench's improvement recently has a lot more to do with Jordan Clarkson than it does with switching to Tony Bradley, in my opinion. Um, and I think the bench remains a problem for Utah. Uh, over the course of the season, even after this terrible, terrible stretch that Utah's in, they're four and nine in their last thirteen, and, and Gobert has looked disengaged for long segments of games. Um, even with all that, he still has the biggest net rating swing in the NBA among guys with at least 300 minutes. Um, Utah's point differential per 100 possessions is 15 and a half points better when Gobert's on the floor. And obviously, a lot of that has to do with the fact that Gobert's great. He's he's one of the most impactful defensive players of all time. Uh, another part of it is that their backup center has just been a mess, that, that position or that role all season long. Um, and I think Joachim Noah, if if he was the player, if he could come back and be the player he was last season, would be a huge improvement over what they've had. And it would give them a chance to to sort of play a different style, too, when Gobert's off the floor. And I think that's important to be able to shake things up from time to time. Um, he's a lot more of a passing center. I think he's he's still solid defensively. He's not quite the level of the two-time defensive player of the year, obviously, but um even in his old age, I think he's a, a heady defender, um, pretty active on the perimeter, can still block some shots. He, he's he's just a well-rounded player. So I think it would help. Um, another thing I think Utah needs to explore is small ball, five minutes. Um, I kind of thought Jeff Green was going to be that. I don't he, – he was terrible as well, um, kind of like Ed Davis, but I don't – he didn't have a ton of time to – play small ball five. I, I, I'm very curious to see what Jarrell Brantley would look like in that kind of a role. Um, he's been awesome in the G league, but the G league is the G league. And I don't know how much you can trust performance and numbers from there, but he's, he's got sort of that prototypical small ball five body, I think. And he's a great athlete. Um, he's, he's another guy that's kind of well-rounded in the, the, at least in the G league. I mean, he's got good passing numbers, rebounding. He's, he's doing a little bit of everything down there. I'd be very curious to see what it looked like if he just played a couple minutes a game with him at the five. That's maybe just curiosity for me, but long-winded answer. Jesse, hopefully that answers your question. Yes, Memphis was pretty good with Conley and Noah together, and I do think that would be interesting to have him on the Jazz. Uh, Amagic 20... Uh, I butchered that. Amagic 24, sorry. Um <laughs> How will opposing teams try to minimize the spacing for the Rockets in the playoffs? This is a difficult question. Um, I think the easy answer and and the go-to, I think, for most people, and understandably so, is you just have to punish them with, with big guys. Um, we haven't seen anyone do it yet. I mean, the, the Lakers and the Nuggets, I think, are the obvious 
calls is, you know, you would think Anthony Davis should be able to punish them inside. You would think Jokic should be able to punish them inside. And this season, the Rockets, um, this is the entire season's number. So this includes when Capella was there, but they're 24th in defensive rebounding percentage. So that's at least a suggestion that you should be able to get some offensive boards on them. Um, but I don't, <laughs> there's a little part of me that thinks maybe that's not even the answer because I think even if you dominate them with offensive rebounds and you just score at will inside, that's not going to force them to adjust. They're just going to keep shooting those threes. Uh, and and probably two or three times out of every series, they're just going to overwhelm you with the math. Um, they're they're going to be one of the most fascinating teams to watch in the playoffs to me. I don't know if there's... Uh, they're not like a title favorite, but it is really hard to articulate like how would you beat them? Because I don't think you can stop James Harden one-on-one. This new version of Russell Westbrook, where he just attacks, attacks, attacks the rim all the time. He's basically thrown the three-pointer out of his repertoire. Uh, He looks phenomenal here since they've switched to this micro ball strategy. Um, I, I think this is just the ideal setup for both of those guys. And to me, again, it seems kind of reductive. It seems like kind of the obvious answer, but the only one I can think of right now is you just have to be able to destroy them inside. You got to dominate the boards on both ends of the floor. Um, Stay home on the three point line. I guess Uh, you're probably going to give up a lot of open looks at the rim to Westbrook and Harden that way. But I guess you'd probably prefer that to them teeing off from the three point line. Um, they're, they're going to be very, very fascinating to watch. I, I guess my initial take would be to stay home on the three-point shooters, um, you know, at least to the extent possible, and then just attack, attack, attack the offensive glass. That might hurt you on, on your transition defense, and so guys are going to have to be really committed to sprint back after they attack the glass. Uh, but that's that's sort of the natural inherent advantage that other teams should have. Um, they're again, going to be really fun to watch this postseason. at skills, sunny. When was the last time the NBA had such a balanced pool of good teams? I mean, there are five to seven legit teams contending for the title. I agree with you, Sonny. Um, and this is what was so exciting to me about this NBA season coming into the season was it, it looked like it was going to be wide open. It looked like a bunch of teams were going to have a chance. And that's proving to be true. Um, he said five to seventeen. Wow, this is crazy. It's even tighter than I the last time I checked. I just went to five thirty eight um, NBA predictions, and right now the Bucks, the Clippers, and the Lakers all have a nineteen percent chance of winning the finals, according to this model. Then you've got the Rockets at sixteen percent. Then you've got the Sixers, <laughs> who are still at twelve percent. The Celtics at 8%, the Raptors at 4%, and the Nuggets at 3%. So that's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 teams with better than a 1% chance at the title. Um, and 5 teams with a better than 12% chance. It is, it's wide open. It's been so fun to watch. Um, <clears throat> the reorganization of the league this summer where a lot of these super teams were kind of broken down and it became a, t- a bunch of really good duos, like obviously... LeBron and AD with the Lakers, Kawhi and Paul George with the Clippers, uh, Westbrook and Harden, um, Jokic and Murray, 
Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell, uh, the Bucks with Giannis and Middleton, um, just team after team after team. The Sixers with uh, Embiid and Simmons. The Celtics have something going now. Um, they've got that positionless trio with Brown, Tatum, and Hayward. Plus, you throw Walker into the mix, and Tice is a solid center. The Thunder are better than people realize. The Mavericks with Luka and KP. Um, you could basically just go up and down the league, at least like the top half of the league, and there's just really intriguing rosters all over the place. It's been such a fun season. And that's, you know, I kept thinking at the beginning of the season, it's a shame that ratings are down because I think if people would just give the product a chance, um, there are just so many good games night to night and so many good teams night to night. I, I have friends and family who've texted me at various points in the season who are turned off by the three-point shooting. Um, and I kind of get that. It's it's just different aesthetically than it's been in the past. It's it's weird when you turn into a certain game and you see three after three after three being clanked off the rim. But then I think you if you you know watch a lot, you're also going to see games where teams are on fire from three, and those are fun to watch. And now there's teams doing some interesting sort of um, departures from the norm too, like what the Rockets are doing with small ball. I think is really fascinating. Um, the Lakers are playing big when a lot of other teams are going small. The Pacers are playing big. Um, there's there's interesting things happening throughout the league. I don't I don't think it's everyone is just shooting threes all the time. Although the three point rate is obviously up throughout the league, I think there's a lot of nuance um, throughout the NBA. So <clears throat> I didn't answer your question yet, Sonny. But um, when I thought of this, I, I I and I thought about this before you even asked it is. I can't remember the last time there was this much parity. When you think back on the league, at least in my lifetime, and I'm in my early 30s, um, been paying pretty close attention to the league for at least 20 years, um, there was always a dominant team. And it always, you know, most years it seemed like there was at least one or two teams that, that felt like it was almost inevitable that they would get to the finals. The Warriors, obviously, are the most recent example. Um, the Miami Heat when LeBron was there, that was the dominant team. The Shaq and, or not the Shaq, uh, the Kobe and Powell, Lakers. The Celtics when they formed their big three. We go back a little bit earlier to the Shaq and Kobe, Lakers. Um, you've got the Bulls shortly before the Shaq and Kobe, Lakers. It's just lots of dynasties. If you go back even further than that, you've got the the Celtics and the Lakers in the 80s. We're, we're really dominant. Um so basically, the history of the league has it's it's often been about dominant teams um, and mini dynasties and full blown dynasties. <clears throat> when I when I was thinking of a specific season when it was wide open, right after Jordan left, I think we had at least one season that was kind of that way. I, I pulled up some numbers from the nineteen ninety eight ninety nine campaign. Um, that season there were. Four teams with an SRS above five. An SRS is simple rating system, which is just point differential plus um, strength of schedule. So again, four teams with a five plus SRS that season, which is it's a good mark. It was the San Antonio Spurs who ended up winning the championship that year. Um, the the Trailblazers, the Jazz, and the Heat. This season, <clears throat> there are uh, six teams with an SRS over five, and then the Rockets aren't aren't too far back they're at 4.87 um so they're they're just shy of five 
Uh, and one thing to note here too, is the Mavericks, believe it or not, are actually fifth in the league in SRS right now. So going back to that question about their ceiling, um, that was the first season that I kind of thought of was that 98, 99 campaign, the first year in like the post Jordan vacuum, it was pretty wide open. That was when the, the Spurs won their first title with Duncan and David Robinson. And I think Avery Johnson was on that team, but then immediately after that, the Shaq and Kobe Lakers. Um, take over, win three straight. They look like they're going to be inevitable for a while. And then I think there's a little pocket there right after the Shaq and Kobe Lakers where there was there was some parity for a little bit. Um, the Spurs and their fans might beg to differ because they won, let's see, three titles out of the next five. Yeah, three three out of five titles right after those Shaq and Kobe Lakers. Um, but you sprinkle in the 04 Pistons in there, a team that's often talked about as like the one team without a star that won a title. And I think that's frankly false. I think Ben Wallace was a phenomenal defender and Chauncey Billups was really good. And they're just a real well-balanced team, but I get the point. Um, then you also have the 0506 Miami Heat uh, snuck in there as well, which I'm sure Mavericks fans still love to hear about to this day. Um so maybe there's a little pocket of parity right there, but then the big three Celtics form and the, the Kobe and Powell Lakers come in. The Mavericks sneak a title in 2011. I think that's probably my favorite individual title run ever. Um, that, that was just a phenomenal playoffs for Dirk Nowitzki and the Mavericks. But <clears throat> the story of the NBA, you know, generally speaking, has been dominant teams. And so it's it's cool to see this season where it does feel wide open. I mean, the bucks are putting up historic numbers. They've, they've obviously been ridiculous this season. And I think um, statistically it's hard to make a case for many others being the favorite, but <laughs> I'm, I'm guilty of this too. I, I think a lot of people have that natural tendency to say, well, LeBron's been there. Kawhi's been there. And so I could easily see them winning too. And then there's, I think there are decent cases for several other teams as Sonny mentioned. So, Really, really fun NBA season and an unusual NBA season because it's it's generally been dominated by dominant teams. Mark Schindler at the underscore full court. Favorite non-star prospect in the NBA right now? This is such an interesting question to me. And then he puts in parentheses, projects as a high-end role player. So what I did for this question um, I'm, I'm going to define prospect as players who are in their age 22 or younger season. Um, and I pulled up a list of those guys just to sort of get a feel for where I wanted to go with this question. Um, some names that kind of popped out that I think probably don't have star potential, although I hate to put a cap on guys' potential. But OG Ananobi is interesting to me. Matisse Thibel is interesting to me. Um, let's see. People may quibble with me on some of those. Like they, they may think that those guys actually do have star potential. And I think, you know, maybe there's a case for that. Um, I'm just looking through the list right now. Gary Trent has been interesting here lately for the Blazers. Um, Landry Shamit, I think is, is pretty interesting for the Clippers. Mo Wagner has had an interesting little season for Washington. Um, the guy that I kind of dug into the numbers for, though, was DeAnthony Melton from the Memphis Grizzlies. This season, 
He's averaging 15.2 points, 6.8 rebounds, 5.5 assists, and 2.3 steals for 75 possessions. Um, just does a little bit of everything for the Grizzlies. His shooting is woeful right now. I mean, it's it's really bad. Shooting 28.9% from three, uh, 48.8% from two. His, his effective field goal percentage is well below average. But he still managed to be a very, very positive player for the Grizzlies because of all those other things that he does and his defense. I think his defense is just lights out. He's part of why the Grizzlies have been such a surprise this season. Um, let's see when he's on the floor, they're plus 5.4 points per hundred possessions, um, which ranks in the 82nd percentile when he's off they are minus 5.8 points per 100 possessions. Um, his net rating swing is in the 96th percentile. He's he's just been a very, very positive player for the Memphis Grizzlies this season. He was a positive player for the Suns, too, last year. Um, just just an overwhelming plus this season because of his defense. Um, I think he gives you a little bit of a – as a passer, he's a good rebounder for his size. If he even becomes like a league average uh, three-point sh- three shooter, um, I think he could be the kind of player that could have like a Marcus Smart level impact like what he does for Boston and I just I love what Memphis is building down there in addition to Melton obviously the big name guys like Morant and Jaron Jackson and I think Brandon Clark is going to be very very good throw DeAnthony Melton into that mix and he'd be he's you know sort of the defensive ace for that team Um, just think they have a very very bright future all right thanks for sticking with me I went about twice as long as I thought I would. So uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. And uh, as always, I you know thanks for all the questions. You guys give awesome topics for us to talk about. I, I think it makes it <laughs> podcasting so much easier to have smart listeners um, who know the game, who know the modern game. So thank you for the interactions. Um, again, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so. Tell your friends and family, too, if you have done so. And uh, until next time, I leave you with a shout-out to Benno Utri, who is Isaac Harris's favorite player, um, and Kyle Anderson.